Roxy, what's the weirdest game you played in youth group? So many to choose from. Maybe the lifesaver passing game. Oh. Where everybody had a toothpick in their mouth and you had to pass the lifesaver from your toothpick to the next person's toothpick (laughs) with our lips getting tantalizingly close. So confusing. (laughs) We weren't supposed to kiss, but you were basically setting us up to do it. (laughs) I know Chubby Bunny had to be up there. Seems like a major health code violation. And a choking hazard. Honestly, I don't know what they were thinking. There was one that was awkward called lap sit, where basically you just sat on each other's laps, which not sure it passed consent frameworks, but (laughs) there were boys in my youth group I definitely had crushes on and I didn't mind getting to cozy up to them. It was all the ones wearing Jinko jeans. They were definitely Wrangler jeans at my school. (laughs) (laughs) Because you lived in rural Colorado. (laughs) No skater boys. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women who haven't been able to eat a marshmallow since 1998. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, It was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. 1990s and 2000s youth group culture was very specific, a very particular moment in time. (laughs) It actually felt pretty separate from regular church. Like, I'm not always sure our parents knew what was happening in youth group. Definitely not. How would you say that your youth group experience was different than real church experience? Both were very missionally oriented. Both were oriented around, like, making sure we were on fire for Jesus. Generally, youth group was positive. Our youth pastor was a young woman who was also Mm -hmm. preaching sometimes at church. She was in seminary at the time. She's So I didn't get the women's submission teaching. I didn't even learn about that until later on. But we had a series of guest speakers talking about purity culture. Mm-hmm. And they seem to always be guest speakers. It was almost like our youth pastor wanted to farm out the more delicate <laughs> conversations to these mm-hmm. people who would just like drop in and leave. That was when I signed a pledge to stay pure, even though I didn't really know what that mm-hmm. meant. And she was recommending I kiss dating goodbye. So there was a lot of it that was great. And also it felt the larger purity culture movement was definitely being imported in through these series of talks. Was your youth group experience, did it feel separate from quote unquote regular church? 
Yeah, definitely. It was separate, but also like it wasn't like we had, oh, it's not like we had a separate church service. But I also feel like it was Mm kind of hit or miss, if I remember correctly. Like in what way? I think there wasn't always a youth group leader. Mm. It was a small church. Like I don't know that they always had the resources to have like a dedicated person. So sometimes there'd just be like high school Sunday school. Mm -hmm. I remember the weird games. And I remember we always did like the 30 hour famine where we were raising money for who was that? Was it World Vision? I'm pretty sure it was World Vision. Yeah, we were raising money for that. So we would have like Mm -hmm. a 30 hour lock in at the church where we also couldn't eat anything. Um, that was crazy. <laughs> we also did that. And I'm like, was this wise? Like, I don't know. because you mix lack of nutrients with like lack of sleep <laughs> uh-huh. and hormonal confusion and like yeah. weird things are going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Mostly I remember a few like weird fights between like <laughs> in the girls section of where we were sleeping. But I remember we also had like a girls Bible study. Mm hmm. And I remember that really well. And I also remember, so I just remember being the one often that was like, we should read this book. And then it would be like Elizabeth Elliot or something. I mean, I feel like... It's almost like you had an editorial (laughs) instinct. Maybe. You're like, I'm curating this reading program. You had a passion to resource the church. (laughs) 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 Okay, but here's something funny. When I was visiting my parents earlier this year, during like the prayer time, like prayer and praise time, the music director, um, she was like, I'm so grateful to see Roxy here today. It's so fun to have her back. And then she like shared this story where she was like, I remember Roxy, who was like a senior at the time or something. And she would come to youth group. And at this time, it was like mostly junior high and like freshman kids. And she would always like bring her boyfriend. She's like, I'm not really sure her boyfriend wanted to be there. <laughs> this woman was sharing the story like years later and remembering that you would bring your boyfriend to church, to youth group. Yeah. And she was like talking about it in this sort of way that she was like really proud of me and thought it was really cool that I would like give up a Sunday night to hang out with these like younger kids in youth group. Also that I was like bringing my boyfriend along. <laughs> was your boyfriend on the fence about Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, definitely on the fence about church. I mean, I feel like kind of maybe we've talked about this before. Like, I think kind of everybody out where I grew up was like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but not necessarily right, like I right. go to church. But I yeah. certainly didn't think that he was a very good <laughs> Christian. And I was like very committed to trying to help out with that. <laughs> I think I brought my atheist boyfriend my senior year to like a Wednesday night community event and remember being so angry with him that he like quoted something really crass from Family Guy. Like, <laughs> we're in a church. I feel like I definitely had the same experience at some point. <laughs> and, we, and we didn't end up with these men for, for no. many reasons, probably. No, but a lot of my teenage angst was definitely like those two things connected. Like purity culture teachings, youth group teachings with like, my semi-agnostic boyfriend and uh, what we might have been doing or not doing behind closed doors. (laughs) Well, we're going to get back to that. (laughs) Today, we're talking about how church teachings affect teen girls down the road, including ourselves. Later on, we'll hear from Sheila Ray Gregoire, 
She and her research team surveyed 7,500 women about their experiences as teens growing up in the church. They share their findings in a new book, She Deserves Better, Raising Girls to Resist Toxic Teachings on Sex, Self, and Speaking Up. First, the good news. Sheila and her research team found that church-going for teen girls is correlated to higher rates of self-esteem, happier marriages, and better sex lives down the road. But there's a big asterisk. It all depends on the kind of church. In general, churches that taught things like boys will be boys, that girls are responsible for managing men's lust, that girls talk too much, heard that Mm. one, ended up faring worse in all of these categories. So basically, the more that submission and purity culture reigned, the worse women fared. Indeed. Speaking of purity culture, (laughs) which we do not a small amount on the podcast, let's go back to the feelings you were having about (laughs) your behavior behind closed Mm. doors with the semi-agnostic boyfriend. Right. Well... To be clear, I was a pretty big believer in no sex before marriage and was definitely the uh, gatekeeper, if you will, on that in the relationship. And that was really important to me. But um, it was important to you to be the gatekeeper. It was no, it was important. (laughs) It was important to me that we not have sex. Yes. And this was common. I felt like as the girl and as the Mm -hmm. Christian in the relationship that it was my job to enforce the boundaries. Right. And to make sure that we didn't go too far. Because because he couldn't or wouldn't. Probably both, you know? Right. Like as a guy, (laughs) how could he stop himself? And as like a not super Christian who didn't care a ton about going to church or had any exposure to purity culture, right? Like Mm -hmm. he wasn't going to care about those things anyway. So it was on me to enforce that value for myself. But I felt a lot of guilt about to some extent dating somebody who didn't share that value. Mm -hmm. And then also a lot of pressure around like what boundaries to keep, what was okay, what wasn't okay, how far was too far. Mm -hmm. And I worried about that a lot. I know that my senior year... I definitely felt guilty about kissing, making out with my boyfriend at the time and definitely didn't feel like like I wanted to talk about it with anybody at church no. because that felt like, well, I already know what the answer is going to be. Right. I knew that my parents weren't particular, you know, they, they're smart people. They kind of surmised what was going on. <laughs> um, I didn't want to talk to them about it. But to one of the points that Sheila makes in her book There were lots of rules and boundaries around specific sexual activities, but not actually a lot of conversation about like what sex is or sexual development Mm -hmm. or something like, let's figure out what healthy boundaries look like for you, given your age. Because I would imagine what you tell a 13-year-old and what you tell an 18-year-old going off to college, I mean, hopefully it'd be a little bit different or a little more tailored to their maturity or lack thereof, but Mm -hmm. lots of conversation about purity, not also a lot of conversation about sexuality itself. Definitely. I don't really remember any of that in youth group. I mean, I remember, I don't even really remember youth group talks about sex, really. I just remember somehow purity culture was in the air. And I think that might have been more to do with other influences on me than just my youth group. 
like you were saying, there were sort of these outside speakers. I do remember some of that. I also remember definitely signed the pledge card. And then, of course, got other like resources related to that. Definitely like Elizabeth Elliot's books. Mm-hmm. So I think I think I just assumed a lot about who what I could talk about with people, like with youth group leaders at at my church or the women's Bible study leader. And I I wanted to be the good girl, and I didn't want to even admit that I was struggling with anything, you know, let alone something mm. that just felt very deeply like like this deep held value that I was supposed to have. I remember feeling very confused my senior year. Like one, I was dating this guy and I wasn't sure I should be. I felt a lot of like cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. around that and felt Mm -hmm. spiritually convicted, but also really excited. That was my first boyfriend. Yeah. Looking back, I mean, feelings of confusion and like figuring out what's important to you, what your values are and your identity, that feels all very common for teenagers, um, whether or not Mm -hmm. they're in the church, but especially for teenagers who grew up in 90s, early 2000s youth group culture, I do think there was this added expectation of, as you said, like being the good girl, being the good Christian, um, standing athwart the tides of secularism that were coming to us in the form of Britney Spears and MTV and American Pie. Oh, man, I was not allowed to see oh, that. <laughs> yeah, it was, there were all these crop tops coming. Yeah, that was like the, the, the advent of crop tops. Mm. Somehow we had internalized the expectation that we had to be perfect Christian girls slash women. And in addition to like holding the boundaries with my boyfriend, I also felt this weird mix of guilt for dating somebody who was agnostic and also a ton of pressure that maybe I should save his soul and that any mistake I made that didn't represent Jesus well to him was like extra bad. (laughs) You might be the only representation of Christ that he ever encounters. So don't mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) It felt like the spiritual teaching I was getting from youth group culture just conspired with expectations that a lot of oldest children, especially oldest daughters, face. yes. (laughs) So you need to be an A-plus student. You need to be applying to Mm -hmm. top colleges. You need to be involved in three Mm -hmm. or four extracurriculars. And you also Mm -hmm. need to, in any encounter you might have at school every day, you need to remember that everything should be inflected with the gospel. (laughs) Everybody should know like the goodness of the gospel because of the way you live. And every encounter is an opportunity to reinforce that. I mean, that's a lot. Yes. (laughs) That's a lot to have on your shoulders in addition to like normal teen things. Like what do I do with my first zit? How do I manage my period? Mm -hmm. All sorts of things. It was a lot of pressure. It really was. And I, like you, oldest daughter really internalized a lot of that. And, um, you know, when I go back and like read note, read my journal entries and stuff from that era, I'm just like, man, I was worked up, man. I was anxious about a lot of things and stressed about a lot of things. And (laughs) I remember my dad telling me, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago or something. I was talking about how stressed I was at work. And he was like, Roxy, you've been stressed in sixth grade. (laughs) Thanks. 
<laughs> yeah, I wish that we had had some more helpful emotional resources, like in addition to resources around sexuality and knowing what your boundaries are and agency. Like what I had internalized from church culture was more kind of pat answers than anything really dealing with complex emotions. Mm. It'd be interesting to know how that continues to affect us. Just hypothetically. Just hypothetically. <laughs> the tricky thing here is that I think, you know, this is like therapeutic. Go back and look at the ways that stuff in your childhood is affecting you now. But I really think that in the moment, like none of those youth group leaders, none of they were all trying their best. And I think there was a lot of good heartedness in mm-hmm. what we were being taught and and so much hope for us to like not make the mistakes of our parents or like not mm-hmm. not fall into some really dangerous like realities of what can happen to teenagers and especially teenage girls and you know mm-hmm. it's hard to like go back and fault people i know were like really trying their best you know it's not like they were sitting there thinking like how do we teach our girls to be okay with abuse. You know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was not an intentionality around raising us that way. Like, I don't think so anyway. Right. So is there a way to acknowledge, is there a way to acknowledge both good hearted motives and less than ideal outcomes? You like you, you meant this for good. And also it mm-hmm. had these unintended consequences that women down the road are then having to grapple with. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't get pregnant as a teenage girl and (laughs) people were excited for me to go to college and I did get Mm -hmm. great grades and was really taught how to be self-reflective and to think deeply about Mm -hmm. God and the world and meaning. And I, I feel like I got all of that from church as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do remember feeling a kind of confidence or self-assurance in my Christian identity Mm -hmm. in high school. I feel like I have to credit that environment for setting me on a path that I'm still on and that I'm grateful for. Yeah, I agree. And honestly, I felt like leaders in my church really respected me and were really proud of me and and actually like really wanted me to Mm -hmm. succeed and to speak out and to go be successful in the world, like things that I don't think all girls always got at churches. And I feel like I really did. And so I, in in some ways, I feel like a lot of toxic messaging I got actually happened in college at the church I was there. And I'm glad for some of the foundational things I got that I think helped me be, helped me kind Mm -hmm. of resist some of that. And I Mm. got those from my home church and from my parents. You were given a firm foundation. I just want to say that because... (laughs) I am actually really grateful for how I grew up, you know? Yeah, I am too, for how I grew up. It was a tricky time. Beyond Youth Group, there were tons of books and resources aimed at Christian teen girls like us. And one in particular rises Mm -hmm. to the top of the pack. When we come back, a brief history of the one and only Rio Magazine. Plus, today's guest, Sheila Ray Gregoire pronounced like Jaguar. Sheila is the author of 11 books, including the best-selling The Great Sex Rescue and its new follow-up, She Deserves Better. Our conversation with Sheila is coming up just after the break. (laughs) 
Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Get the deets on the religion beats. And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hey there, curious minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get to Sheila, I need to ask you to do something, putting on your your reporter hat for a bit. I need you to explain the magazine Brio to me because... Sheila cites it a lot in her new book, generally not positively, Mm. but I never got it. I never even knew about it for I was a heathen child. I'm happy to report from the Brio beat, but also I don't have to put on a journalist hat (laughs) because I was a loyal reader. (laughs) First person journalism. Mm -hmm. I'm back to being Michael Babaro. So to start off, what does the name of this magazine mean? It means vigor or full of life for Jesus, it's implied. And who is Brio's target audience? Or who was Brio's target audience when it came out in the 90s? Us in the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The magazine was produced by Focus on the Family. It was a conservative Christian magazine aimed at teen girls. It was sort of an alternative to Teen Cosmo or Seventeen. And instead of giving sex tips or talking about tampons, Brio talks about prayer, evangelism, modesty, waiting for your husband. Also some makeup tips occasionally. <laughs> was it naturalistic makeup? No. Like this was the 90s. We didn't. Oh, okay. But I definitely remember like little like girl talk sections. There were things about like friendship, definitely mm. a lot of stuff about boys, but everything was like sort of had that overlay of evangelical lens. So if you were talking about boys, you were talking about how to date in a way that would make Jesus happy. Mm-hmm. There would be like how to get along with your parents, but also, mm. you know, like this is why you shouldn't hang out alone with a boy or why you should definitely never ever drink alcohol. I mean, it was like all mm. that kind of stuff. It was a youth group teaching for girls in a magazine that was right. very pretty and glossy and fun to look through. It sounds like you liked it. I did. I read it until I was about, I think, 14 or 15. I mean, I think it was was definitely like maybe aimed at high school kids, but I think probably most of their readers were like 
that sort of 12, 13, 14. Yeah. Younger teen stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, yeah, I mean, I went on, I went on a uh, mission trip to Bolivia with Brio Magazine. Yes. I remember you. (laughs) I remember you. And, and what was the nature of the mission trip? Was it something that you like, won a chance to go on through a giveaway or yeah you had to write an essay so i wrote in um about my deep passion for saving unsaved people in um on yeah it was um yeah i don't want to think about what i wrote and and tell me you still have it somewhere i'm sure that my mom does so (laughs) it's framed above your family's mantle and you're like oh my gosh put that away but i i did get selected i was i think i was 12 or 13 i was i think there were 13 girls that went and i was the youngest or or there were two of us that were that age it was fun. The Brio girl, there was always a Brio girl every year that, you know, got to be the cover girl. And I think, you know, she also like won by essays and references and stuff. So she came on the trip and she was like 16 or 17. And I was like, oh, my hero. So what would be so fun. amazing to learn about you right now is that you were in fact the Brio girl one year. See, by the time that I could apply for the Brio girl, that's when I was having angst about the boyfriend and I was no longer <laughs> reading Brio. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And like, I was like in my head, I was like, the Brio girl would never do this. <laughs> <laughs> I le- so the Brio girl became like a super subconscious. Oh, oh no, probably. <laughs> anyway, a lot of our peers liked it. And yeah. it's kind of funny to me how often it comes up with some of our friends who grew up in this era. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, we're in this circle of like religion journalists who yes. also grew up evangelical. <laughs> so that's yes. that's a pretty that's a pretty tight circle. Yes, we all liked the magazine because we like journalism, and then we were like evangelical girls. Brio closed in 2009, then announced a comeback in 2017 as a print magazine. And it's interesting to think if it can compete with, you know, TikTok, Instagram, social media content. I know they Mm. had uh, Sadie Robinson of the Duck Dynasty clan on one of their covers when they came back. But teens today can just follow Sadie Robinson on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And there's no shortage of purity culture teachers on TikTok these days. Same message, new medium. Today's guest is Sheila Ray Gregoire, author of She Deserves Better and host of the Bear Marriage Podcast. Roxy and I are really excited to have a conversation with you, Sheila, about your new book, which is all about a church teachings geared toward teenage girls. We remember those years well with some trepidation. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, your book is a natural follow-up to your previous book, The Great Sex Rescue, which was geared toward adults. But now you've written a book really aimed at teen girls. So if you could pick out one or two of the dangerous teachings that you saw being given to girls at a young age that really had negative effects later on, what are a couple that come to mind? 
Oh, goodness. So we surveyed 7,000 women to find out about their experiences as teens in church and then what messages they were taught. And then we were able to trace over time how that affected like their marital and sexual satisfaction if they got married, their likelihood of marrying an abuser, their long-term self-esteem, etc. And there were all kinds of things that were really, really super bad. But probably the ones that were the worst were the modesty teachings. And that's what we're often mm-hmm. hearing about in the news, you know, dress codes, girls, you have to wear one-piece swimsuits with Mm -hmm. t-shirts over it, whereas guys can do whatever they want. But it's this idea that boys can't help it, right? Like boys are visual in a way that girls will never understand. We measured Mm -hmm. that belief. Boys can't help but lust if she's dressed like she's trying to incite it. Girls have a responsibility not to be the stumbling blocks uh, for the boys around them. And when girls believe those things in high school, they are 68% more likely to marry an abuser Mm-hmm. They are 52% more likely to experience sexual pain as an adult. And vaginismus is largely an evangelical disorder. We have a 23% incidence rate, which is two and a half times the rate of the general population. It's huge. It's bad. Wow. About 30% uh, more likely to have bad self-esteem. I have been hearing about vaginismus mm-hmm. Recently, as we're talking about purity culture and its effects, but maybe for our listeners, what does this mean? Yes. Okay. This is one of my soapboxes. I want to educate everyone on this. Vaginismus is a sexual pain disorder. So the muscles of the vaginal wall contract and get really tight. And she's not doing this on purpose. Women who experience this, they can have trouble putting in tampons, trouble with medical appointments, and it can make penetration during sex really painful, if not impossible. We found an incidence rate of about 23%, which again is around two and a half times the rate of the general population. And if you talk to any pelvic floor physiotherapist, they'll tell you that the majority of their clients are evangelical women. If you're someone who has had pain with sex, if you can't get in a tampon, please see a pelvic floor physiotherapist because there is help. Thank you. Public service announcement. (laughs) Yes, there you go. (laughs) And what is the connection between Mm -hmm. teachings on modesty and you know, decreased sexual fulfillment, vaginal pain, abusive marriages, like what, what mm-hmm. is the cause and the effect that you're trying to tease out there? Well, let's think about it. If you believe that boys can't help but lust, or that boys are visual in a way that girls will never understand, or another thing that we measured was boys can't stop in a makeout situation. So it's her responsibility to stop the makeout progression. And all of those beliefs, we're looking at like 70 to 80% of of women believe those as teenagers. Women or evangelical women? Our survey was predominantly evangelical women. Okay. But I don't know that we broke that down into evangelical versus non-evangelical. But what are you really saying about your beliefs about men? Mm -hmm. You're saying that my whole life, I will never be safe. Guys will only ever objectify me. If I'm lucky, they may also love me, but they will always see me first and foremost as a sex object. And so all the intimacy that I'm longing for, that's a pipe dream. Hmm. And this is always phrased as this is God's greatest gift. You know, God created men this way. Can't we just celebrate this because this is what draws men to you? And so girls are never safe. And vaginismus can almost be seen as a trauma response. That's what we found in The Great Sex Rescue, too, because we found another piece of the puzzle, which is the obligation sex message. When we tell women, you are obligated to give your husband sex when he wants it, your chance of experiencing sexual pain increases to almost the same statistical effect as if you'd been abused. Because our bodies interpret obligation as trauma, because it says you don't matter. 
He has the mm-hmm. right to use you however he wants. So he can use you however he wants, and he's always going to objectify you. And those two messages together can cause girls to just clam up literally in a trauma response. But it also teaches girls, guys aren't safe. And so when she encounters a guy who objectifies her, who checks out other women in public, who's really addicted to porn, she doesn't see that as a red flag. Hmm. She says, oh, I guess he's just a guy, like my youth pastor told me. Yeah, some of that really resonates with me. I remember some of those things really well in my own experiences. Like, I think that part that you teased out there at the end of like, not seeing things as red flags because they were taught as like, oh, that's very natural for men. I think that I remember a lot of those teachings from on the female side, but I also remember hearing from the men in my churches and youth groups that like they were being taught against those things, you know, like porn is a, is wrong. It's a sin. Mm-hmm. Don't objectify women, treat women really well and carefully and with respect and honor your wife. I mean, I feel like I, they were hearing other messages. So I am curious how, I know you didn't survey men, but it does seem like what you're kind of getting at is that the teachings that women were getting were being absorbed in a way that, that hurt women and their view of men. But I'm not sure that that's necessarily what men were being taught. We did actually survey men for our book, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. Mm. And One of the big problems with what was taught to guys is that they conflated noticing with lusting. And so Mm. guys were taught lust is every man's battle. Mm -hmm. But then it wasn't clearly defined that noticing that a woman is pretty or that a girl is pretty is not the same thing as lusting. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of guys grew up with a lot of shame around um, their sexuality that really didn't need to be there. We found, for instance, that 75% of men say they have a daily struggle with lust. So not 100%, okay, 75%. But when you break that down, only about half of them show any sign of lusting in a variety of scenarios that we gave them or have trouble with porn. So that's half of the guys who say they have a daily struggle with lust who who show no sign of it. Mm. So I think what's happening is that many men conflate noticing with lusting. But at the same time, I, I would push back a little bit because I don't think that the church has largely taught men to respect women in the proper way. Mm. What they've been told is the way that you respect women is you don't look at them. Mm-hmm. So you bounce your eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, every every man's battle tells men when you go into an office, turn your eyes away because usually there's a receptionist and receptionists bend over a lot. And so turn your <laughs> eyes away so that you don't look at her. That's so specific. What a job hazard. It feels like maybe a specific thing that happened for this guy that then yes. he's projecting out onto all men. <laughs> yes. And and you think about the effects of the, the, the message that you need to bounce your eyes. Is that any different? than the lust message, because in both cases, you were saying she is a sexual object. Mm -hmm. And Jesus never refused to look at women. Mm -hmm. Jesus chose to truly see women and treat them as whole people. And I think that's the piece that's been missing. Mm -hmm. When we put so much pressure on girls for modesty standards, for for covering up, Mm -hmm. for stopping the makeup progression, because boys just can't stop. You know, they just can't stop. It's so much harder for them. Mm -hmm. And so you need to stop. You need to be the brakes then we're really making it seem like boys can't have self-control and self-control is a fruit of the spirit. So that's a very problematic teaching. (laughs) Obviously, a lot of your research and findings are oriented around teachings around sexuality, lack of proper 
sex education, purity culture teachings. I was really interested, though, in the research you did on emotional health and Mm -hmm. emotions and gut knowledge and intuition, in part because, you know, the years of being a teenager can be so intense and confusing with the feelings that come up. So what are good teachings on emotions, especially when we think about mental health challenges among this generation of teenagers? Teenagers are going to have very big emotions. They just are. And when a teenager says to a parent, you just don't understand me, parents often dismiss that because, oh, you're just being silly. Because we can see objectively that the zit on your face on picture day is seriously not a big deal. Like this is so not a big deal in the broader scheme of things. But to a teenager who's just starting to have big emotions and learning how to process them, that could actually be the biggest thing they've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to start understanding that. That doesn't mean that we coddle it. But mm. often what parents do, what churches do is something called spiritual bypassing which is you give these platitudes as a way to distance yourself mm. from really connecting. So your, your teenager will be upset and you'll say, you should count your blessings or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, we should, we should give thanks and everything. Or why are you worrying? Don't you know that his eye is on the sparrow, you know, and he has all the hairs of your head numbered. You don't need to worry. And that's just a way of shutting down communication. And while all mm-hmm. of those things may be true, they don't help. <laughs> at the time, because what your teenager needs to know is that you care and you're willing to listen. And what we often do with girls is we shut down their voices. We say, you are a problem. Your emotions are a problem. Your opinions are a problem. And you need to get back in your little box. And if you don't get back in your little box, then other people won't see Jesus. Because don't you know that other people will come to Jesus because of how happy you are and how joyful you are? Right. (laughs) So not just your eternal salvation, but many other people's mm-hmm. eternal salvation is dependent on you kind of keeping it all together and always being joyful in the Lord and grateful. Well, that's right, Caitlin, because you may be the only Jesus that your classmates ever see. And so you need to show them <laughs> how okay, wonderful that, that, it that is. That was a trigger. Man, I remember <laughs> that was a lot. <laughs> okay, that, whatever that was. The same way. <laughs> We both went to public high school, so like, <laughs> and we're very aware of our role. As... I was, and I was real sure that my boyfriend's eternal salvation was dependent on me. <laughs> oh man! Whew. One thing that you found in in the study that maybe felt counterintuitive was that teenage girls who grew up going to church ended up having higher self esteem than those who didn't, and had higher than average marital satisfaction. So obviously not all churches are the same, (laughs) but to frame it positively, what kinds of churches do produce healthier women later on? I really do want people to understand this. And this is one of the big things about our research is that we've Mm. consistently found that church attendance is good. Believing in Jesus is good. And in fact, this is such a settled thing in psychological literature. They don't even study it anymore. Mm. Interesting. People know church attendance, religiosity is a positive thing. So instead, we break down into subgroups and then look at the subgroups. And that's where it's interesting. And that's Mm -hmm. what we found. Church attendance is good. But... Once a girl internalizes a lot of these toxic things about modesty, about consent, about her body, about whether or not girls talk too much, the benefits of church attendance disappear. And she Mm. actually would have been better off 
if you measure in terms of self-esteem, marital satisfaction, if she hadn't gone to church at all. Hmm. And that's scary. But okay, here's the good news. Go back in time to grade four in your math class and you're learning about averages. And when they tell you that the average is good, so the average of religiosity is positive, but these toxic Mm -hmm. teachings bring things down, that there has to be something else bringing it up. And that's churches that don't teach this stuff, you know, or parents that counteract these teachings so much that it doesn't affect their kids as much. Mm. But that's an awfully big thing, and that's a big gamble. So it's really better (laughs) to try to find a church that is healthy, that isn't teaching a lot of negative things and isn't placing boys' sins on girls. So you have a chapter on boundaries and how important it is to help teenage girls know what ba- you know good healthy boundaries are, how to set their own boundaries and keep them. And in my experience, that was a strong message within purity culture that I was exposed to was boundaries actually seemed really important. Like here are the boundaries that you keep in a dating mm-hmm. relationship with a young man, <laughs> various, you know, specific physical and even emotional and spiritual lines that we were taught to keep for our health and safety. So did purity culture get it right on this front? Yeah. And that's the thing. All of this was really well-intentioned. The 80s was awful, okay? (laughs) When I was growing up in the 80s, it was awful. Teen pregnancy rates were through the roof. Rates of teen sexual activity was really high. Alcohol, drug use was high. And everyone just freaked out. And they were like, well, how are we going to control these teenagers? And so comprehensive sex ed started to come into the schools. The church didn't like that. And so we replaced it with purity culture. Mm -hmm. That's good context. When I think about boundaries, there's there's really two kinds. There's conviction boundaries, which is I'm not going to drink, you know, I'm not going to do drugs, I'm not going to go anywhere beyond kissing for three seconds. But it's going to be a really good kiss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, it's going to be three seconds, but it's going to be amazing. <laughs> amazing. And then there's like protection boundaries, which are the things that you do because you're not comfortable with something. So if someone is texting you at all hours, you know, being able to say, hey, I'm going to bed now, you need to leave me alone. <laughs> you know, mm. And those were the ones that girls especially have a hard time with is, is drawing a line and saying, no, I'm worth something. And you can't just walk all over me. So we can go in two directions with this. If you want to talk about like sexual boundaries, I, I think that what the church really was doing when they brought in the no dating and the no kissing till marriage, (laughs) all of that, they were trying to stop us all from having sex. And you know what? It worked. It did. If you look at the stats, millennials were less likely to have sex uh, before they were married. If you grew up in purity culture, it worked. But is that the only measure that counts? Mm -hmm. Because if the only thing that counts is being a virgin on your wedding day, I think that's a pretty poor view of the gospel because I have two married daughters and I can tell you that on their wedding days, I didn't really care about their virginity status nearly as much as I was thanking God that they were marrying men who were good and who were not abusive. Mm. And that's the problem is when we look at other outcome variables, things like marrying an abuser, future marital and sexual satisfaction, long-term self-esteem, that's when a lot of these ideas about sex get really wrong. And I'm not saying saving sex for marriage is wrong. That's not what we're talking about. But you can encourage kids to save sex for marriage without telling them, if you don't, you will have ruined your purity. You will have ruined your chance to ever be intimate with someone properly because you've given up your most precious treasure. Yeah. 
the language of your most precious treasure first, <laughs> ick. Second of all, no. Third, <laughs> men are not hearing this about their virginity, right? There's a book, When God Writes Your Love Story, by Eric and Leslie Luddy, and they tell this story about a couple in university that they're dating and they end up having sex when they didn't want to. But the conclusion of that was that she had lost her most precious gift. I mean, they had both had sex. Right. But she was the one who had lost her most precious gift. Mm-hmm. There was one story in the book that we told, and another another quite big speaker told the story about her own life, and she said that that she had lost her purity in this way. And she described it as, he was doing things to me I didn't want. He was forcing himself on me. I was like a deer in the headlights, but he awakened something in me, and I lost my purity. And she described this as, you know, her losing her treasure, and it was a big sin that she had. But what she's describing is classic date rape with arousal Mm -hmm. non-concordance. So she's saying she didn't want it. So she had said no, he was forcing her and she was like a deer in the headlights. That's classic freeze trauma Mm -hmm. response. That's Mm -hmm. very common. But then he awakened something in her, meaning she got aroused. Mm Mm-hmm. And so because she was aroused, she thought she had consented. Right. Mm. But she hadn't. There was no sign in that story that she had consented. But this story became her big story of failure. And she's warning Mm. other girls not to lose their purity the way she did. We see this a lot in our material to girls is you should know better. Don't Mm. make out with a guy. He can't stop. You'll, you know, he'll get carried away. And when we're saying he can't stop... What we're really saying is he can't help but rape you. And is that what we really believe about boys? Mm -hmm. And I think if we were to word it like that, it would be clearer what we're saying. Because many women think that they are to blame for their own date rape situation because they consented to kissing. And so because we were kissing, what did I expect? He got carried away. Mm -hmm. The other teaching for girls and and women. I mean, I remember hearing this in like my college church, which was that women don't want it as much as men. When you're married, you're not going to want it as much as he does, but you just need to give it anyway, which I also find so frustrating because it really teaches women that like sexuality and pleasure is not for them. It's for men. Or it's not as much for them. Yes, women experience pleasure, but not to the nearly to the same degree as men do. And if the sexual desire balance is tilted more toward you, well, that makes you really strange as a woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one's saying it that overtly, but we don't teach that women could have a higher sex drive than their husbands, right? That that's no. odd or that's especially sinful. In our survey for Great Sex Rescue, we surveyed 20,000 women for that one. And 58% of marriages, he has the higher sex drive. But 19% she does, and 23% it's shared. So this idea that it is always the guy with the higher sex drive is totally not true. But even the, the idea that boys are visual and men are visual in a way that women aren't, there's been two huge meta-analyses, which are the gold standard of research studies done in 2020 and 2021, where they 
they used high level statistical analysis where they combined like many, many, many different studies about MRI, MRIs and looking at different parts of the brain. And what they concluded is that there is no actual difference Mm -hmm. between men and women's brains with regards to the visual nature of sexual arousal. Women are more likely to get physically aroused, but have that not register in their minds. So we have more arousal non-concordance and less subjective reporting of arousal than men do. So they're more likely to match up. And we tend to get aroused by different things, but it's not like we're not visual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seriously, has anyone looked at TikTok? Like there are major thirst trap stuff all over TikTok <laughs> for a teenage girl. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. it is a big thing. Women are visual. Girls are visual. And the thought that she has to wear a t-shirt over her bathing suit, which by the way, please youth groups never do that. That is dangerous. Okay. Like any lifeguard will tell you, you should not be swimming with a t-shirt over your bathing suit. But anyway, <laughs> just a little aside. But guys, meanwhile, can wear whatever they want because girls don't notice six packs or muscles, you know, simply not true. Mm -mm. And and I'm not saying guys should cover up either. I'm just saying we are all capable of treating each other with respect. Sheila, you you mentioned social media and, you know, we both follow you on social media and appreciate a lot of the ways that you highlight research there. And you're not afraid to critique specific Christian teachers in terms of authors, pastors for the things that they're teaching to girls and women and showing the effects of those teachings. And some Christians respond to that by saying you shouldn't critique publicly, Mm -hmm. right? Like this is a private issue, go to someone one-on-one, but you shouldn't be critiquing teachers publicly. How do you respond to that? Do you have a philosophy for how you engage? Sure. So public teaching is corrected in public that is the New Testament model. You think about Paul who went up to Peter when he was refusing to eat with Gentiles and told him off. And then not only did he tell him off, he wrote about it to the Galatians <laughs> so that even more people knew about what happened. And yeah. then Peter goes and says that Paul's writings are scripture. So like Peter was all good with this. This is what, what happens. And if you look at the epistles over and over again, you read both Paul and Peter calling out specific people and warning people to avoid them. Mm-hmm. Public teaching must be corrected in public because if you go to someone privately and they agree that this was bad, what they said, other people aren't necessarily going to hear it, the people who are still reading the work. So it must be corrected mm-hmm. in public. But when people use Matthew 18 for this, they're really misusing that. Mm-hmm. Matthew 18, first of all, says that you have to first go to the person. If that doesn't work, you bring two to three witnesses. And if that doesn't work, you bring them before the church, which would be the last step would be the equivalent of critiquing in public. Mm -hmm. This was about personal issues. So when someone has offended you personally, when I'm calling out a teacher, I am not the victim. They Mm -hmm. have not offended me personally. But what I know based on our research is that these teachings do harm. And so I have nothing against these people personally. I have something against their work. And in academia, people critique all the time. It's only in Christianity that we think that we can't. And what I find so interesting, too, is that in many people's books, they actually include stories of people who came to them saying their teaching was harmful. Shanti Felden does it in Through a Man's Eyes. Emerson Egrich does it in Love and Respect. Steve Arterburn does it in Every Man's Battle. How when they started to teach this, women were saying, this is making my husband worse you know, then the authors double down and say, so we need to understand what this really is. So so people have already gone to them privately. 
Hmm. And they have not changed. And so even if you take the Matthew 18 as the proper model, mm-hmm. we're already way beyond the first step and into the <laughs> into the last step anyway. Thank you, Sheila, for yeah. a helpful, sobering, but really enlightening conversation. And we hope more people read your book. Yeah, it was great to have you on. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Winsome. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. I feel like we're saying it aggressively now because of something that Jonathan said. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thanks, guys.